we are in our series called Preeminent, which means that we want to see Christ be made first place in our lives. And, and I know sometimes during the holiday season we get busy and we can forget the reason for the season. Uh, but it is. It is the time of the Christmas season, a time, of reflect, time to reflect and celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a time of faith. It's a time of family. It's a time of fellowship. It's a time where we nestle into our homes and uh, surrounded by the decorations, the Christmas lights, uh, we have the, the presents and the smell of evergreen and peppermint and some cocoa in the air. And sometimes we'll get, we'll get down, it's kind of yucky outside, so we'll, we'll nestle down on the couch and we'll turn on the TV. And we'll see maybe some of the Christmas movies that are continually replaying uh, on and on. And you might even come across It's a Wonderful Life. Starring Jimmy Stewart, done in 1946, released Christmas Day, 1946. And if you remember the story, um, it's done in black and white. So for those who were born post 2000, have no clue what I'm talking about. But there used to be movies in black and white, and uh, uh, and they talked in them, and they actually lived. But these, this movie is about a guy named George Bailey, and George Bailey lived in Bedford Falls, uh, if I remember correctly. And he lived there, and he was a, a small business owner, and it's the night before Christmas, and uh, an employee of his ends up losing the deposit uh, that he was to, you know, to, uh, for the finances that they needed, and it ends up defaulting on a bank loan, and it's also because of a, uh, a cover-up by his enemy that he's going into bankruptcy. The whole town is going to fall apart, and he's despairing of life himself. Everybody's pressing in on him, and, and he's wishing that he would not have been born. He's contemplating suicide. And uh, as that happens, there's an angel who appears to him by the name of Clarence. And he's there because he hasn't got his wings yet. Bad theology, but let's set that aside for a time, for right now. And he begins to show him what his life would have been, what life would have been like had he not been born. And it shows that this town had, would have gone into just complete anarchy and immorality and gross sin all over the place and showing that his life did matter. And that he was affecting people, and he was helping transform lives. And we have the title, It's a Wonderful Life, that we really do, though life is bad around us, we do have a wonderful life. And I think about th- that movie, and I think about the life that we have in Christ, and I, and I, and I, I see a, a bit of a, uh, a connection, that oftentimes we don't think God can use us. We think that we are, we are just the worst people in the world, and we fail to realize all that God has for us in Christ, that we truly have a wonderful life. And, and for some reason, we don't enter into that life. We don't live this victorious, empowering, Christ-purchasing life that his death, burial, and resurrection, as well as his ascension, has enabled us to have. And Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. In this letter, uh, he's writing to this church. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to combat some false teaching that had crept in to this body of believers to counteract it, to show that you have a wonderful life in Christ. And I want to show you, and in fact, we're praying for you that you know this wonderful life that Christ has for you, that you understand where you, what God is doing in you, what he wants to do in you, what he's delivered you from, and how you should respond to that. So today we're going to look into this passage and we're going to delve into it and try to pull it apart, expand it, and make it a little bit bigger so we can uh, see all that God has for us as well as the sins and the things that we need to avoid because for whatever reason, there's something in our life that's keeping us from experiencing this life. Either we love this world too much, either we're too comfortable right where we are, 
too complacent or we just we love our sin and, and, the, and the deeds of our flesh way too much that we could never give up and sacrifice ourselves to truly live the life that God has for us. So let's jump into our message. And before that, let's pray for God's blessing on our message time. Father, I ask that you speak to us, that you pull away the layers of unbelief, that you expand our horizons, that you bring into high definition in 3D this, this passage, that we can truly see it for all that it is and the truth that you have for us. And Lord, help us to truly live this wonderful life that you have made available unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's break it down. Let's start off um, in verse 9. Now remember, Paul and Timothy are writing this to the church of Colossae. This is a church that um, Paul had never visited before, but he had... uh, heavily influenced one of the the disciples that's there, a man by the name of Epaphras who had planted this church. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Timothy is with him. He is writing to this church to encourage them because of all the stuff that he sees that they have been going through. So he's writing to encourage them. And he he writes and begins in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual Wisdom and understanding. Notice there, he says, we're praying for you because we want you to understand God's will for you. We want you to grow and experience this wonderful life that God has, and that begins with knowing what he wants. Knowing what he wants from you. So the first step that we need to understand is that if we are to enter into this wonderful life that Christ has purchased for us, then it requires us to learn the will of God. Learn the will of God. We all want to know God's will, right? I mean, who who of us don't want to know God's will? God, do I take this job or do I take that job? Do you want me to date this person or not date this person? Do you want me to to do this with my kids or that with my kids? What about this with my retirement or my my retirement? Do this with my retirement. What do I do? Do I go to school? Do I not go to school? Do I work this job? Do I not work this job? We have all these questions about God's will all the time. And I think we have a very vague understanding of God's will. And I want to break this down. I'm going to spend a little time on this. Um, and I want to draw out and it kind of expand. It's like looking at your phone and you need to, to spread it apart to make it bigger. That's what I want to do with the will of God right now. I want to put my fingers on it and spread it apart so we can see that there are many facets, just like a diamond has. There are many facets to God's will. Now, these aren't in your notes, but I want to go through these rather quickly to help us discern and understand the will of God in a greater way. First of all, there is the hidden will of God. Again, these aren't in your notes. You can write them down to the side. The hidden will of God. And I'd ask you to turn uh, in your pew Bible, if you have one, or just in your Bibles, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29. Um, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. That's on page 171. And we get an idea of the hidden will of God. These are things that God has hidden from us. These are mysteries beyond our ability to fathom that he has decided in his sovereignty and his holiness, his complete omniscience, that he knows all things, he hides them from us for our good. So this is the hidden will of God, and this is uh, Moses writing, and he says this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." Now, these are simply the things that God has kept from us. These are things or mysteries beyond our ability to fathom. We can see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, where the angel proceeds to say something, and John's getting ready to write it down, and God speaks from heaven and says, No, don't write it down. I don't want them to know this. It's a mystery. 
So this is the hidden will of God. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Secondly, there is the decreed will of God. These are sometimes called the the predestined, the eternal, the sovereign will of God that has been determined since the beginning of time. It's completely fixed and includes God's salvation, God's choice and calling of his people Israel or the nation of Israel. The covenant promises of God is seen in the Bible. The decreed will of God is about who will be saved and... uh, and what we um, and all the things that he has completely established and fixed. These are the decrees, how he has fixed uh, the, the days of the week, how he has set the rainbow and, and to appear uh, as a sign of his covenant with us. So these are the promises of God. These are the dec- this is the decreed will of God. But then there is the preceptive will of God. The preceptive will of God. Not perceptive, but preceptive. And the root there is precept. The preceptor principle of God's word. And this is seen in various commands in scripture. This is, we can see that in the New Testament generally, but we can see it in several passages specifically. Such as, for example, it is the will of God that we give ourselves first to God, then to others. 2 Corinthians 8.5. It is the will of God that we work our jobs with integrity, not knowing that we not work for man, but for God. Ephesians 6.6.7. 6, it is God's will that we become mature and fully assured in God's will. That's Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. It is God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Now these are just says, you know, this is God's will for you. This is God's will for you. It says it right there. So we see that specifically, but when we see that generally, there are things that we know generally God speaks about. God doesn't desire us to sin. God wants us to do this, to take care of the widows and the orphans. These are things that we can see in God's word. Now moving on from the perceptive will of God, we have the preferential will of God. The preferential will of God. And I've got seven of these wills. Now, the preferential will of God is anything God delights to have happen. For example, we know that God delights in showing mercy, but that he will still execute judgment. He prefers in showing mercy rather than having judgment on people. We, he, we understand that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in that. He doesn't find joy in that. He prefers that people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's the preferential will of God. Then there is the permissive will of God. Permissive will of God. We know that while, while God wills that we do good, he also permits us to exercise our wills. Samson is a great case in point. God establishes this man, he gifts him, but yet he tells him he's not to have any fruit of the vine, he's not to touch any dead bodies. Uh, we know that uh, um, he also is not to cut his hair. But yet he does, he does two of these things. We also know, according to the word of God, that we're not to engage in sexual immorality. We're not to in marry people outside of our, our faith. And yet he does all of these things. And God permits him to do it. And he has to suffer the consequences of it. God permits us or gives us reign to sin or not sin. So that's the permissive will of God. He permits these things to occur. And then sixthly, we see that there is the directive will of God. And this is when God speaks through a dream, a vision, or prophecy. And let me put a big fat however up there when I say that, because it will never, God will never ever speak something against his revealed word. Period. He will not do that. And this is not the, the, uh, 
modus operandi. This isn't the typical way God works. Most specifically and commonly, he speaks through his word. We don't go out seeking for visions. We don't go out seeking for those things. But God will do that in his sovereignty. And it always must be gauged and evaluated and sifted through the word of God. Whatever is said in that regard must be sifted. But it is part of the, the directive will of God. We see this in the New Testament. In Acts 16, 6, when the Holy Spirit forbids the apostles from sharing the word, in God, word of God in Asia or Bithynia. Uh, we see Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia calling him to share the gospel in Macedonia. This is an example of the directive will of God. Or other examples include Philip or the Roman centurion Cornelius and an exchange that he has to go see Peter. And Peter having a vision of all these animals coming down that were unclean and that he was to, to rise, kill, and eat. And it was showing that God was including the Gentiles in God's salvation. So these are part of the directed or directive will of God. Now, lastly, this is the discerned will of God. And this is where I think many of us are. The discerned will of God is when we are faced with a situation, we don't know exactly what to do. And, and most of the time, though, we see, though, that God's word tells us to do what in those situations? When we're facing a trial, we don't know what to do. God says in the book of James, let him ask of wisdom to how to proceed. God doesn't always say yes or no. Sometimes he does. But most of the time, he shows us principles and precepts through his world. Will, that he gives us free reign to choose for ourselves. Does God want me to choose this job or not choose this job? I don't know. What is God saying to you? What is God showing you? Is, he, is this job asking you to sin? If it is, he's not, he doesn't want you to take that job. It's pretty clear. Look at back and, and look back at the word of God and what it says. But discerning the will of God, we can see like, for example, Proverbs 18.17. This is an example of the discerned will of God. In the Proverbs 18.17, you don't have to turn there. Allow me to read it. Where it says this, The one who states his case, case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So what that is, is the discerned will of God is saying, you're faced with a situation, you have two witnesses in front of you, and one person says this, and it sounds right. And you're ready to answer that person and agree with that person. But this scripture says their person seems right until another person steps forward and basically gives their side of the story. So you don't make a judgment yet. You're asking God for wisdom to discern the best way to go. And, you, and the scripture says that you're to listen to the other person as well. And you hear that person, and now you know this person's way off. So you've discerned the will of God in that situation. You're using the wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of the Scripture to help influence you to choose wisely. Now, we want it much more basic. God, you want me to do this or do that? Because we're lazy. We're spiritually lazy. And God says, go to my word, search, and, try, and, and continually take in the word of God that we might be able to see and discern the very will of God. Now, with that in mind, we've kind of drawn that out. Let's shrink that back, kind of move it to the side as we look at the will of God and how we can understand the will of God and how we are to grow, and how we are to discern. Well, first of all, if we're to really, truly discern the will of God, it requires God's Spirit. God's Spirit. Look at verse 9. Knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, notice that word there, that qualifying word, spiritual. It's a spiritualism. This is not one that can be discerned by PhDs and academics. This isn't one that's going to be found on the Oprah's book club. This is not a wisdom that's going to be found at Harvard or any place like that, MIT. This is not a wisdom that comes from there. 
This is not coming from Princeton or the Ivy Leagues. Or it's, it's coming straight from the Spirit of God, and only the people that have the Spirit of God can discern the will of God in that regard. He's saying that specifically. It's spiritual wisdom. I am praying for you. You will be filled with the knowledge of his will and in spiritual wisdom and understanding, perception, insight. And it's talking about even human relationships and, and how we are to interact with one another. But we have to have the Spirit of God within us. We can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. That's page 953. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to be flipping back and forth from Colossians into 1 Corinthians and Romans today, and a little bit into 1 Peter. But try to stay with me, or if not, just listen in. If you have a hard time finding the books, it's okay. But we see here, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul is writing, and he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Unbelievers can't get it. People that do not have the Spirit of God in them, this looks foolishness to them. Only those that have the Spirit of God can understand and discern the true will of God. Not to say they can't be wise from a worldly standard, but there is a wisdom that is different from this world. He says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Only believers, those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, can truly understand, apply, and love the truths of God's Word. And if we're to know God's will, then we must have the Spirit of God within us. And the Spirit of God is only in those who have repented of their sin and truly trusted in Christ alone for salvation. See, the moment that we trust in Christ, God gives us his spirit. I'm not talking about a second work of grace or a second blessing. That's not what the scripture is talking about. That, that we have the spirit of God the moment that we trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And the moment we trust in him, God gives us his spirit in order to help transform us and into the image of his son. And it's the spirit of God who guides us, who convicts us of sin and helps us. Without God's Spirit, we have nothing. Now, how else can we discern or learn God's will? We have the the Spirit of God, but we also need to share life together. And this might seem like a small point, but Paul is saying at the beginning of this, and and ever since we have heard, meaning that we heard of your life from Epaphras. You were sharing your life as a body. You became a Christian. You didn't alienate yourself. You didn't become a lone ranger. That you shared your life. You opened it up to Epaphras, and he's sharing with us. And we're praying for you. We need to open up our lives and let people know what's going on. I am so grateful for what TJ and Nikki just shared, that they would open up their lives, step into the small group, and testify what God has done in their life. And to share that, that's, that's a scary thing to do. We all know that. We have a scary time opening up to other people. But yet, here's what they are doing. They are laying themselves out, and they're opening themselves up. And Paul's like, we thank God for you. We have to share life together. I would encourage you to get involved in some type of group of other believers for mutual accountability of praying. You're not going to know everything. You might be fearful of praying out loud. You may not know the scriptures. That's okay. We've all been there at one time or another. It's growing together, and that's what God wants us to do, to grow in the knowledge. That's what it says in this passage. In the knowledge of his will. How can we grow in the knowledge of his will if we're not reading the word of God and having other people speak into our lives? We need other people to speak into our lives. So we need to share life together. 
But that's not all. We need to also seek God in prayer. Seek God in prayer. Now, while Paul and Timothy are praying for others, we're also to pray to God ourselves. We need to seek God in prayer. Sustained, reflective, meditative prayer. It is when we are in sustained and focused prayer that God's Spirit is able to help us. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27, on page 944. 944. We seek God in prayer. What happens when we seek God in prayer? That if we're Christians, this is what happens to us. When we're so overwhelmed, when we don't know what to pray, we're so burdened, we lay ourselves down at God's feet, and that's something amazing happens at that moment in time. When we cast ourselves on God, we're so broken, we don't even know what words to pray. That we groan. And here we see Paul writing, Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Flip over. I told you to keep that, keep that one handy. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 through 13. That's page 953, where we see here Paul writing again, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. See, we're to seek God ourselves. When we have the Spirit of God within us, we're trying to discern and become the people that God wants us to do. We have to give Him time to speak that truth in our lives. The problem is we're too busy. We're too busy. We have too many distractions. We need to be able to disconnect. Even the thought of that scares many of us. Turning off your cell phone, turning off the TV, closing your computer, putting away your tablet, turning off the radio. See, many of us have a very shallow faith. And God is calling us to the deeper life. We can't microwave godliness. We can't nuke holiness. Our sanctification takes time. Anything worth, truly worth the effort takes time. Works of art, beautiful natural wonders, they didn't appear in a moment. It was an extreme natural wonder wake, makeover. It was time. And it means putting ourselves in, in the presence of God and letting Him change us from the inside out. So we need to make sure that we're seeking God in prayer. And then we must make sure that we are searching the Bible. 
when we're talking about the will of God, even here, notice the words filled with the knowledge of his will. We're back in Colossians. Filled with the knowledge of his will. The word filled is an aorist subjunctive passive. It means to fill. The passive voice means that it is used to show us what is to be done to them or to be done to us in essence. That God would fill the people of Colossae and he'll fill us. What was God to fill them with? He was to fill them with the knowledge of his will. How do we know? Not, not knowledge of other worlds, not special frames of knowledge, but the knowledge of his will which is found in his word. The word to search the scriptures. He wants them to also have understanding and, and the word here refers to putting together facts and information and drawing conclusions and seeing relationships. It's, the under, it's a way of understanding the discerned will of God that I spoke about a while earlier. That we need to be searching the Bible, to go to the Word of God. When we're hurting, when we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're trying to deal with our spouse, when our kids are rebellious, do you go to the Word of God and see what God says about it? Where do you go? Where do we go? We're to go to the Word of God and say, what does God's Word say to us. We go to the Word of God. But what is all this for? I mean, even as I have revealed the seven facets of God's will, all of them are discerned from Scripture. We cannot regulate, overlook, or alter the Word of God. We can't make it or shift it to make room for our sinful whims. We must place ourselves under God's Word, for that is what is best for us. Now, why do we need to know the will of God? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. What's it say? So as to walk in a manner, what's the word? Worthy. Worthy. So we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, God wants us to know his will so that we might live a life worthy of God. Now let me ask you that question right now. Do you feel like your life is worthy of the Lord? I remember hearing a missionary once. He was, he was uh, on furlough. He shared something with me. He said, how I look at my life. He said, I hope to look at my life as, as a, like God would walk by and see me working and say, he's doing a good job. He's okay. He's doing all right. And he said, because I am working hard. I've been giving up my life. I want to please him. He's the only one to whom I want to find delight and, and really truly please is God himself. And I want to live my life worthy of him. You know, me, living a wonderful life means a life that is worthy of him, that is, it is honorable to him. It's not underhanded, devious, or hypocritical. It is one that God wants above all else. Now, the word walk here says walk in a manner worthy. It's used to denote the conduct of one's life. We see that all the time. We're to walk humbly. We're to walk in truth. We're to walk in love. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. It's always a metaphor how to work, conduct our lives so here, he says, we want, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of God. God that is honorable in his sight. Now, it's, it's finding a way that pleases him, that is worthy of him. And I think about when I got married. I don't know if, if you were like this, if you're married or not. But when I got married, I remember I was trying to help with laundry. And uh, got out the laundry, and I proceeded to fold towels. I, fi- I can't fold the sheets. I can never fold fitted sheets. How many of you are like me that can just take the sheets, and you're like, ah, and you throw it in there? That's what I do. I hate fitted sheets with a passion. I can't stand them. So my wife knows that I won't do that, and I'm, I can't fold any of her clothes because they're too small. I just wrap them up and throw them in, too, because in my kids' clothes, I can't even tell the difference between them. But um, my, I can fold towels. At least I thought I could. 
So I get the towels, and I fold the towels, and I put them all together, and I'm feeling all proud. Then my wife takes them all out, and she goes, you did them wrong. How could I fold it? I folded. Give me, give me some kudos here. I did something to actually help you. She's like, no, you got to fold them this way. And I, and I had no idea. There was like a certain way of folding towels, right? I mean, I just folded up, thought it was great. But I had to learn what was pleasing in her sight and then act accordingly. I've had to do a lot of that in my life. Anybody who's married understands that. You have to learn to please that person. And there's certain way like things like to be done, a certain way that a meal is cooked, a certain order to events that we learn together. And we do that with God. We're to learn what pleases him. In order to live a life worthy of him, we have to learn what pleases him. And that means that we need to have the right perspective, to have the right perspective. We can't see things the way that God wants to, and we have to sometimes, that's why we go to the Word of God, and we have sustained reflection and prayer so that God changes our mind that we can have a good perspective. I remember when I was um, in my early 20s, we had a friend of ours that had a pumpkin patch, and they had a big, giant hay bale maze. You ever been through one of those mazes, hay bale maze? And these guys were all wicked smart, as you'd say in New England, and they, they loved how to construct this thing. So there was a group of us going through this maze, and we were lost in the maze. And not knowing exactly what to do, I'm getting ready to just start knocking down bales. So frustrated that my friend who had created it, it was the son of the owner of the farm, he, he, he's walking on top of the bales and he comes to find us because he knew we were lost. And he says, this is how you get out. He, he knew two, two reasons why he knew how to get out. Number one, he'd help create it. Number two, he had a perspective above ours. And when we looked to him and followed his direction, he got us out of the mess that we were in. See, the same is true with God. When we look to him, we understand that he created the world. He knows how it functions, but he can see things differently than we can. He gives us his perspective on things. That's why we need to have the knowledge of his will to get his perspective on how we are to live and how we are to act. We need to have his perspective. But let's jump back into our text. Look at verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power, dunamis. The word is used there oftentimes referring to the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying here is that if we're to live a life worthy of God, we not only have to have the right perspective, but we have to have God's power. We've already talked about this. We need God's spirit. But here it's again. May God strengthen you by his power. That we don't strengthen ourselves. We have a tendency to find something in ourselves. We're we're people that love Rocky. We want to have that that pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, take on all comers, and find this strength within ourselves. But in the Christian walk, that doesn't get you anywhere. That is not a bootstrap faith. This is a finding strength in the Lord our God. I love it when David, King David, after he had um, been working with the Philistines for a period of time, he comes back and he finds that all of his, his uh, he's leading his army back and finds out that the city where his, his uh, family was and all of the soldiers' family had been taken into captivity. Another gr- people group had come and raided them and taken them off. And all these guys are angry and they want to stone David because they lost their family. They just come from war and they come back and everything's been taken from him. And I love what the text says. It says, David found strength in the Lord as God, that he, he found his power in God himself and he was strengthened because of it. Even when everybody else had turned against him, he turned to God and God gave him power and he led the people and they rescued their entire family and all was well. See, we need God's power to live the life that God has for us, which means that we cannot continue to do, just live in a state of sin. We have to declare war on sin. We let all these entertainments and things whittle away and keep us from experiencing the power and life that God has for us. 
We need to cultivate that power by being filled with the Spirit, taking in the things of the Spirit of God. So we need to be strengthened with all power. And this is according to His glorious might. And here it refers to the inherent strength which displays itself and rule over others. Here it refers to the might which is characteristic of His glory. And it means it's indicating his awesome radiance of deity as we look to him and we understand that he is ruling and he is reigning and that power that is at work and raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. Let's go back. Back to verse 10. Because we're to have God's power, which means we're doing the things of the Spirit of God. We're worshiping God, by the way. Let me add that before I go on in the text. Singing in worship is huge. It's not just for women, men. No, it might be in a higher key, but it's not just for women. We're to come into his presence with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. We're to sing to the Lord. Why does God command us to do that? Why do you think he does that? Just to go through the motions, to fill up a service? Isn't it because that God wants to communicate his presence and power to us? that God wants to give him himself? See, that's why. That's why God calls us to praise his name because he wants to give us himself. If we're to experience God's power, then we need to make sure that we're praising God and not just show up for the sermon, not show up late. We have a hard time showing up late for our, I mean, we don't show up late for our jobs all that much. We need to show up and worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's not just filler until we get to the message time. It's honor and praise worth, praising God. That's the, that's the ball game. Praising Him. We might have the right perspective, might have God's power. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And then what? What's the next part? Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, living a life worthy of God also means producing fruit. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, then we will bear fruit. It's a present active participle, meaning it's a constant, ongoing thing, not just a one-time thing. I've met some people that tell me, I was a Sunday school teacher 45 years ago, and that's great. I'm glad that you are. What are you doing now? It's like, I, I did my time. I'm over. No, it, no, it doesn't work that way. We're to be producing fruit even into old age. Old age. We're to always continually be producing fruit. Author and pastor David Platt, who just recently became the president of the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, he said the reason that many of us don't make disciples is that we're really not disciples ourselves. Not saying that we're not getting discipled. He's saying we're straight up not saved. So we need to make sure that we are, I mean, what are, are we producing fruit? Look at your life. Reflect on it. Am I producing fruit? I'm not saying that you have to be Billy Graham. I'm saying, do you see a progression in your life? Are you growing in holiness? You know, there are heart checks and hard facts. Hard facts are the, the buildings, the bodies, the budgets. Those are the, the things that you can put on a stat sheet. But then there are the heart checks that are the, I'm growing in holiness. I'm forsaking of sin. I'm taking another step of faith. I'm trusting God in a greater way. I'm increasing in the knowledge of God. These are the heart checks, and it's the two together. That you can't say, we're going to do this and not this. They're both and. And we need to make sure that we are producing fruit. What is keeping you from producing fruit? 
What is your excuse? And when you stand in the presence of God, will that be a good excuse? I ask myself the same question. We're to be producing fruit. We're to be growing in our ministry, growing in our knowledge. And the words for growing in knowledge can be translated, by the way, growing in knowledge or growing by knowledge. The idea is just like doer rain that nurtures the growth of the plant, so too are we to grow in our knowledge of God or grow by that knowledge of God to do and be of more use for God. Now notice the next phrase, for all endurance, for all endurance, which means properly remaining under endurance, steadfastness, especially as God enables the believer to remain under the challenges he allots in life. What that means is if that we're to live a life worthy of God, then it means that we need to be persevering until the end. Persevering until the end. It means the total trajectory of our life should always be with Christ. We're to continually walk with him. Not, I prayed a prayer at camp when I was 12, but I'm living as a complete pagan now, but yet I'm okay with God. The Bible knows no such distinction. There is no, it's, it's either all or nothing. We're to be persevering till the end, until, until the very end when Christ takes us home or till we die. I'm reminded of the story of the dog soldiers. Anybody ever heard of dog soldiers? Dock soldiers were Cheyenne soldiers in the 1800s. And they were an elite fighting group of soldiers. And they were extremely aggressive in battle, instilled fear in their enemies. They would be dressed out in the full Native American regalia. They'd have all the feathers, all the war paint, the deer skin. They had uh, their spear, their bow and arrow. I mean, everything. They came in just looking intimidating. And they would ride into battle, and they would jump off their horse, and they would drive a stake into the ground. And that instilled fear in their opponents because they understood that this person was saying, I'm going to die right here, right now. I'm going to die, or I'm going I'm to stay here until someone relieves me or until we win the battle, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not retreating. I'm staying here right now. I'm going to die for this. And I'm, waiting to, I'm not, I'm not going to get worn out. I'm not going to quit in the midst of the battle because so-and-so didn't come and help when I asked. I'm going to fight until I die. I like that mentality. We're to be dog soldiers for Jesus. Are we, are we fighting in that regard? Are we holding on? Have we staked our claim? See, many of us, we're good until it gets uncomfortable. Somebody says something to us. Somebody offends us. We haven't resolved it, and we go. And and that's all too common. And we don't see past that. We don't try to work through it. We let it get to us at our essence. And we're all guilty of that. And we have to learn to fight through that and say, the the enemy that we battle is is by far greater. And we have to make sure that God or Satan doesn't get a foothold and divide us. That we have to, to bond together and persevere till the end, making sure that we battle together. Now, notice what is coupled with endurance we have patience with the joy. Now, patience here, it means long-suffering to the self-restraint and does not uh, hastily revenge a wrong. See, it's the same kind of concept, not only persevering with joy and persevering till the end, but patience with joy. If we're going to live a life that God wants us to live, then we have to be able to overlook those faults. We can't, we have to restrain ourselves. Don't try to revenge a wrong. That we're enduring patiently wrongs, even from other believers. Now notice what we're to do next in verse 12. We're to be giving thanks to the Father. See, living a life worthy of God means praising God for all that he has done. 
praising God for all that he has done, giving thanks to God. Everything that we do, everything about this passage, everything about understanding how to, that, to learn God's will, to live a life worthy of God, is to result in praise and worship unto God. That's the entire purpose of our life, is to be praising God. Because it's when we're praising God that we experience the fullness and joy of God. And we can't know that until we're truly giving ourselves wholeheartedly in praise and thanksgiving. God wants to, calls us to give thanks, commands us to give thanks. Why? Because he wants to give us himself. Gives us himself. That's what he wants us to do. By thanking God, we're acknowledging him. We're thinking of him. And he's showing us how glorious and wondrous that he is. We must make sure that we are praising God for all that he has done. Now notice why we give thanks. Look at verse 12. Who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now see, by Paul saying what has happened, he is showing us that we've been transferred, that we're different than we were. And really what he's saying here is I want you to leave your old way of life behind. There's something more glorious that God has for you. And if we're to live this wonderful life that God has for us, it requires leaving behind our old way of life. Not to go back to it. It's the picture of, if you remember, um, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife and his kids, and the angels appear to him and says, you you have to get out now. God's going to destroy this city for its wickedness. And what's the thing they're told not to do? Look back. Look back. And what does Lot's wife do? She looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. And it's a picture of looking back of your life of sin, going back to your old way of life before um, and apart from Christ. God says, no, you're to leave that behind. It's done. It's gone. You're a new creature, a new creation. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness. You've been transformed or transferred into the, the kingdom of God's Son. I've given you an inheritance beyond your ability to understand. Leave behind your old way of life. Because what before you is so much greater than what is behind. That press on to receive the message and the, the call, upper call in Christ Jesus. Because what we have in front of us is far greater greater than anything that we could have behind us. That's what God has for us. We're to leave behind our old way of life. Notice what God has given us. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, this word for qualified, it's an aorist act of participle. It means to make f- sufficient, qualify, authorize. God has authorized you to receive the inheritance that Jesus has earned. You are now a recipient of everything that he has is yours. How about that? And it's a talking, it's even, Paul is intentionally borrowing Old Testament covenantal language of how for the, old, the, the, people, the Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and showing that we have been grafted into God's promises and his plan to receive the glorious inheritance that has been planned since the foundation of the world. God has given you his inheritance. I mean, think about that. How would you like to get a phone call? By the way, uh, Bill Gates just died, and all of his family was killed too. They were all on a boat, and they all sank. And we found out that you're a long-lost cousin. And you get all of the Microsoft fortune. And what, what are you going to do? First thing you're going to do is tithe. That's the first thing. <laughs> first thing you're going to do. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, what are you going to do? You've received an inheritance. You're, you're going to be like, what do I do first? How do I respond to this? 
See, what we have in Christ is greater than that. Because the earthly fortune passes away. This is, a, this is an inheritance that Peter says. I want you to turn with me just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. That's on page 1016 in your pew Bible if you have it. Peter says, he talks about our inheritance. He says we have an inheritance. Same word form there. That is imperishable. Undefiled. And unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the inheritance that you have. No one can take it away. The government can't regulate it. No thieves can break in and steal it. You can't lose it. It's right there. God has given it. It's kept in heaven and it's waiting. Waiting for us. We have a reward beyond our ability to fathom. Now, Paul shows us that we not only have an inheritance, he shows that we've been deli- what we've been delivered from. Look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. See, we've been rescued from Satan. Now, we think, well, I didn't follow Satan. No, the Scripture says very clearly that the God of this world, which is Satan, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory and majesty and light of Christ. That Satan has blinded unbelievers. I mean, they can't see who Jesus is. They don't get it because they don't have the Spirit of God. God sovereignly rescued you. You didn't rescue yourself. You didn't escape out of a prison camp. You were rescued. You were freed by the Son of God. That he rescued you from the domain of darkness. That's from Satan's camp. You have been rescued. We all have. Now notice what he did next. He not only set us free from the domain of darkness, but he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He relocated you to the kingdom of God's Son. He relocated you. He transferred. You went from the outhouse to the penthouse. As Tony Evans would say. I mean, he has transformed you. He has given you all of these blessings. And what Jesus has earned, he has given you and you are part of his kingdom. That's an amazing thing. We've been relocated to God's kingdom. Now notice what else here. This is the kind of point of the whole thing. You look in verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus has set us free from our sins. Now, we can talk about Satan, but many of us aren't battling Satan on a daily basis. The problem that we have is with ourselves and this body of death that we carry around. That's what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. I want you to turn there with me for a moment. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. That's page 944. Just this little quip right here. We're we're finishing it up, knowing that we have been redeemed from our sins. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, it's interesting here. We don't think about this all that much, but Virgil, the Greek poet, describes how the Romans would sometimes compel a captive to be tied to a dead body as punishment. It's pretty sick. They would be joined face to face and buried about until the smell got so bad that it destroyed the life of the living victim. I mean, imagine, you need a dead body, a corpse tied to you face to face. 
and the fumes be coming from that, carrying that around, that weight. And he's saying that the body that we live is a body of death. Who's going to deliver us from it? I mean, Virgil says the living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand till choked with stench and loathed embraces tied. The lingering wretches pined away and died. So it's saying that body of death will kill them, even though it's a different body. It's outside of them. But that stench will overcome them and end up killing them because those fumes will become noxious and will kill them. And he's saying, who's going to deliver me from this body of death that I inhabit? Who's going to set me free? I can't continue in this sin. I can't hold on to it. Someone's got to set me free. Someone's got to cut the chains. And that's what Jesus did. The Son of Man came to set us free from our sin. Not that we might continue in it and play with it, but that we've been set free from it, that we wouldn't play with it any longer. We wouldn't have to go about it. See, he has set us free from the power of sin, He's already set us free from the penalty of sin, and he's going to set us free from the very presence of sin when we step into glory. When we experience that kingdom in all of its glory, when we see Christ for as he truly is, high and lifted up, as the ruling tattooed conqueror. When we see him for who he is, high and lifted up, we're going to praise his name because we've been redeemed from our sins. And that's, all of that, all of that knowledge should cause us to stop and go, I got a wonderful life i got to learn to live that life. I've been set free from my past. I'm to grow in the will and knowledge of God so that I might live a life worthy of God and I might all result in worship to God. God has set us free. He's given us this wonderful life. Our best life is not now. We can enter into the life that Christ has afforded unto us, but the best life is yet to come. He's given us a foretaste of it for his glory and our joy. And it's available to all who call on him that all who draws him. See, this wonderful life is only available to all whom the Father draws to the Son. To all those God the Father draws to the Son. Those are the only ones that can have this life. Is he drawing you? Don't resist. Place your trust and faith in Christ by repenting of your sin and believing in him today, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, you've given us a wonderful life. You've given us all spiritual blessings in and through Christ. You've made them available unto us. And Lord, help us to enter into that blessing. Lord, help us not to give in to sin, but help to to put away and understand that you have cut the chains and the cords of our sin, this body of death that we carry around with us, Lord, that we might live in this newness of life that we see the Son of God living as he was resurrected from the dead. And Lord, I pray that you, are, that you draw people to yourself. We know that no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. And Lord, I pray in your spirit that you draw them, that they might see the reality of who you are, that they might see that they are condemned in their sin, but they might confess their sin and their need of his Savior, repent of that sin, and put their entire faith and trust in you. And Lord, for, us, for those of us who have trusted in you, but yet we have began, we've gone back to our old way of life, Lord, forgive us. May we turn away from that sin. May we begin to learn and listen to the Spirit of God as He is awakening the Son of God within us or conforming us to the image of God's Son by helping us to understand and discern these spiritual truths as we search the Scriptures and as we seek you in prayer. Lord, please glorify your name in our lives. Help us to truly be the community you desire us to be and live this wonderful life that you have given unto us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.